Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you're aware that Jew in the City is an organization that breaks down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews and Judaism through the power of new media. The thing about being an outlet, a platform for spreading Kiddush Hashem and positivity is that sometimes, as you're in the midst of spreading positivity, you hear from people who disagree with you, who think that we are bad or we do have problems. And the real truth is that the real answer about any group of people is a nuanced one. No group of people is 100% perfect or 100% flawed. There, There is a, a, a detailed answer. Um, and a lot of times what we end up seeing and reading about about all communities, certainly the the Jewish one, you see the cheerleaders that, you know, only have the positive to say, or you see the detractors that think everything is the worst. And really what has developed over our nine-year history, because we just had our nine-year anniversary, actually, happy birthday to us, is that um, people, our readers, our fans and followers, and maybe some of our haters, um, have pushed us to uh, acknowledge some of the challenges and call for change and even get a little bit involved in some activism along the way um, and really to push the community to say, don't we want to be the Kiddush Shem? Don't we want to be as good as the Torah calls for us to be? And so this is the dance that we do. So this is the latest dance that got started a couple weeks ago. Um, many of you may have heard of a mom from Lakewood that left her baby, her four-month-old baby girl in her in the car in Howell, New Jersey, uh, Nicole's parking lot. She took her other kids in with her, left the baby in the car for 45 minutes. It was like 90 degrees outside. The baby was in, you know, thick pajamas with a blanket on top. Um, a couple of Good Samaritans heard a screaming baby, listened to the sound, followed it, smashed the window, and the child, thank God, was okay. And then the Internet started to erupt. Um, on New Jersey 12 News, people started commenting, why aren't you covering this story? This community shouldn't get special treatment because of who they are. And then the anti-Semitism started flooding in comments like, they probably do this by the hundreds, they're killing their children, the Hasidic community is deplorable, even though this woman wasn't a Hasidic. Um, and I had sort of seen people posting around online, this was great fodder for you know people who have left the Orthodox world because it's you know proof to them that we're awful people and do things wrong, um, as opposed to maybe wondering maybe there's something not right with this mother or, you know, something going on that we're not aware of um, and, you know, lumping the problem into the community as opposed to, you know, this being a person where something is going on. Um, And I wasn't sure how to handle it because, like I said, we're certainly not a perfect community, but I I don't know what's going on. And women in my community, by and large, are not leaving their children in the car, not that I've heard about. I'm not seeing any major parenting problems going on here. I see a lot of love and parents doing the world for their kids. And so I wasn't saying anything. Then a Catholic woman contacted me, and she said, I am a, a lifelong friend of the Orthodox community. I grew up with you know, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews in Barrow Park. I've been working with them in education for the last several years as well. And her friends span the modern to centrist to ultra-Orthodox communities. And she said, this is so upsetting to see these comments. How could this be? And so what we ended up doing was we touched on the story and we said that there should not be special treatment, that any parent that leaves a child in a car should face, you know, whatever punishments are required by law, whatever, you know, social services come in, that should apply to our community naturally 
usually we don't know what's going on here, but we did sort of a positive feel-good story on how nice it is that this non-Jewish woman wanted to defend our community, and don't you see when you're a good person the kind of goodwill that it leads uh, people with, and, you know, the vice versa of that is when you're an awful person, it causes people to hate us. And it's not to say that there's no illogical anti-Semitism, because there is, that that just exists, and it will probably continue existing in the world as we know it until Mashiach comes, but to try to have some sort of, you know, positive uh, side to the story. What ended up happening was a lot of people liked this and felt, you know, happy and proud, but then we started hearing from people in the Orthodox community. These were not ex-Orthodox people. These were not anti-Semites. These were Orthodox Jews um, living, I think, in maybe Brooklyn, Rockland County specifically, who said, Allison, you don't know what you're talking about. There is a parenting problem going on here. And I said, look, I have an experience in the communities that I've lived in, um, but let's take a look at this. Let's talk about this. And I had wanted to have a particular child expert on for a while uh, who's really dedicated his life to protecting children in all sorts of capacities. I met Rabbi Yankee Horowitz uh, a few years ago. He was giving a class on how to protect your kids from you know, being endangered by a, a molester and an abuser. And I think I talked so much during his class, he was ready to invite me to join him um, at the front of the room. Little did he know at the time that I also uh, speak before audiences. And we've kept up uh, in touch over the last several years because we have a lot of shared goals in improving the community and being the best that we can be. And it is my pleasure to bring Rabbi Horowitz onto our show this morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Allison, it's a pleasure to be on, and uh, that description was pretty accurate, but I remember it as just such positive feedback from you. <laughs> I do remember the oh, parents class very well. Remember the class? No, I think you're doing great work, Allison, and I think, that, I think that what you spoke about, the balance between highlighting the positives and, uh, you know, not being in la-la land is, is what we really, what most moderate people are looking for, you know, to have real issues addressed, addressed properly, appropriately, um, and ha have general discussions, genuine discussions about them, and, and at the same time understand that, that, you know, typically this is a, uh, a very small percentage of folks that are either committing them, A, and B, defending them. So God bless you working. You know I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm, I'm very happy to be, uh, to be on with you. Yeah, well, uh, the feeling is mutual. So let's talk about the term that um, some of our commenters were, were calling it was laissez-faire parenting. That was what they saw going on. So you said that you're familiar with this. You've seen this happening. So um, what do you think that we could use to improve on? Like what areas do you think... Um, as a community, we can take a look. I mean, we're in Elul right now, and I sort of feel like if we sweep under the rug and we don't take an honest look, like that's the Chil Hashem right there. So it's Elul right now. So let's talk about what, for all parents listening right now, what should we be aware of to be keeping our kids safe in general that maybe we could use to improve on? Well, if you're talking, you know, about that specific uh, case of leaving a child in the car, which is just, I mean, thank God, you know, the kid's okay there, and thank this wonderful person who helped them out. Um, but, you know, we do know cases like this that end in fatalities. Um, does it happen more often in the Jewish community? You know, I can't even answer any question like that, uh, because you really need data, and, and I don't know that there is any. Um, it, it's certainly easy to say, well, you know, that 
the parents got eight kids, how the heck are they ever supposed to wash all of them, right? Or say, it's probably like that, or it may be like that. You know, you really don't know unless, unless you have information. I get asked that same question about the rates of child abuse regularly. I just did an interview with uh, um, an Israeli, a very large Israeli media, Israeli media outlet about some of the stuff we're working on in Israel, in child safety. And, um, you know, one of the questions she asked is, how are the rates in the, in the Orthodox community? Um, so I don't know that anybody has hard numbers. And quite frankly, as you know, in our community, there's very often reluctance to come forward. Uh, so even if you do have data, you have to really wonder how accurate it could be. But mm-hmm. I, 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 think, um, I think that, that it is extremely important to address it overall. I, I do believe naturally having a larger family would be a stressor. Uh, and perhaps, you know, it, it might be a greater challenge for parents to be able to watch, you know, a larger number of children. Uh, I certainly wouldn't call it laissez-faire parenting, uh, but it makes me crazy when I drive around Muncie and see some kids without helmets on, which, yeah. you know, but riding bicycles without helmets on. And it, it makes me crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So there's... Parents across the board, anywhere, who aren't doing everything possible to protect their children, it, there's just no excuse for it. You know, this particular instance with, the, with leaving a child in the car, um, you know, we've, our children are grown. Our kids are from, ranging from age uh, 35 to 21. Um, thank God it never happened to us. Could I see the possibility of running to, you know, late to a meeting and dropping off a child at Childcare or going into a store, but for the grace of God, I, I can't imagine it happening to us. I also would be dishonest if I said, you know, never. It, it could never happen to me. Um, the ha- thankfully, there are you know some very practical mechanisms that parents can can put in the back of their cars to uh, all of our children have them, you know, to notify them when. When uh, you know they they uh, they stop the car or anything like that, um, but so I really I I don't believe that the rates are higher, and I certainly don't believe that laissez-faire parenting. Um, it may I believe that this that training needs to be given to parents about raising children, which I've always felt, and specifically mm-hmm. you know raising larger families is always going to be a, a challenge. Have like a teacher yeah. in school, Allison. You know, you got 16 kids, which research shows to be the ideal number. You know, you're doing fine. 22, you're still doing fine. After a certain point, you know, the larger the class gets, it gets a little more challenging. Right. So, I, you know, I've been to different families. You know, we have four kids, Blia and Hara. I'm not the most organized person. Uh, my children are more responsible than I am. But we do, you know, the helmets and, and that sort of a thing. <laughs> Um, I've seen just different types of families are just better at managing larger number of kids. There's just different types of people that are, um, you know, more organized or less organized, more worried or less worried. Like I, I'm, you know, raised, I'm daughter of a worrier, you know, who was a daughter of a worrier before her, I think all the way back in my family. So if my kid's missing for more than like two minutes, you know, I'm running after them. My husband's like, oh, let them, you know, just play in the playground. I'm like, that's where, you know, 
kids get kidnapped. So um, obviously there's different approaches, you know, religion aside. My husband was sort of more raised, like, you know, keep the leech longer, let them run out and explore. I was just speaking this past weekend in South Carolina. He's like, I'm taking them to Governor's Island where they have saws and hammers for the kids to play with. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally relate. My wife is like you. I'm like your husband. I, I get it. So, so there's definitely different types, but the thing is that in certain communities, the expectation is just larger families in general. And so some of the complaints that I saw online was maybe not everyone could handle the number of kids that they have. I'm saying, is there anything to discuss there that people need to be more self-aware of what they're able to handle? And if they are going to a rav that's not getting them, then rav and find a rav that might understand that I'm feeling overwhelmed and this is beyond me. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? I could not agree with that more, and I was just going to mention that that what happens often is that you see a family that has um, a large, you know, large number of children, which is a relative, a relative term, of course, but you know, has and they just have everything in order, you know. Our next door neighbor yeah. has ten children. Okay. Um, those kids are meticulously dressed, beautifully watched, supervised, well-behaved. I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) one would not be uh, um, a a bad person to uh, to feel, (laughs) to be annoyed with them, you know, with with the mom, you know, like, how do you do such a great job? But, so what happens is people look at that and they say, hey, she's doing it. I can do it. Most people or many people can't. So I, I do believe that um, it's extremely important, like you said, to be in touch with the Rav uh, about to discuss, the, you know, your family and how things are going. And uh, especially the guys, the husbands especially, must be in tune to the reality of what their wives what life is like, both in terms of being helpful and both in terms of understanding, you know, are we able to uh, um, take care of another child? So I, I, I think there's a lot of balance here. And finally, a love who gets it is so important. And um, no, that's all. That's about it. Okay, so that's our advice for today. So now let's go a little further back now, just sort of um, now that we've touched on that issue. Can you tell us a little about your background growing up? I know that you're Hasidic. Um, I believe you've always been Hasidic. Um, And I think, you know, at least I was raised with an idea uh, before I was observant that, you know, Hasidim are all extremists and rock throwers and, you know, cover-up abuse and all these, like, awful stereotypes. And you have been Hasidic your whole life, and you dedicated your life to protecting children, keeping kids safe. So if you could share with us a little bit about what your background looked like growing up and how you became interested in making this your life's work. So thank you. So uh, the, the only other thing I would add to that is saying and uh, consistently writing against very forcefully against extremism and violence and denouncing it, I don't, you know, every single time, uh, um, not every single time, but very, very often when I see things like this, I think it's very important that, that community leaders speak out uh, against this kind of stuff. And um, the fact that in the Haredi and Hasidic community, many of the leaders are not hooked into 
you know, into the grid, so to speak, of, of digital technology <clears throat> exacerbates the problem because they're not the types that are going to get on the Internet and say, we denounce this violence. So being that everything mm -hmm. else is so interconnected, the silence sometimes leads you to believe that, that, um, that people are okay with it. And I, I, think, I think the vast, overwhelming majority of people and leaders are not okay with it. I wish there were more people mm. uh, in my community speaking out uh, against it. Many of them even speak to the issues. You know, I wrote an article uh, in 2009. There was horrible, horrible violence in Jerusalem uh, over a particular woman who was uh, um, Munchausen by proxy with a child. Right on the lawn. I wrote about 12 articles about it. You know, against the violence and trying mm -hmm. it, and, and um, the, the, the I would have loved to have more company, you know. It would have been, it would have been really nice to have more company. Now, what happened, what I pointed out, is that the largest yeshiva in the world, Yeshiva Mir, the Mir Yeshiva that has 7,000 students there, Rabbi Finkel got up in person in front of a packed uh, a medrash, a study hall, and forcefully spoke against the violence. He said he doesn't want his students anywhere near any of those streets, and that when they see it happening, they should yell at the people and tell them that this is not the Torah way. It didn't get covered in the media, the fact that he said this. There were probably 3,000 people in the room, you know. Those folks weren't getting on Twitter and, and saying what he said. So I think yeah. that, that it's underreported as well. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not um, whitewashing it, but I, I think we need to do a better job at getting that message out. Now, anyway, so I, I didn't actually not grow up Hasidic. I grew up... Um, in the yeshiva world, I went to Yeshiva Tarvadas and grew up in Del Harbor, Queens. And um, I actually put on Hasidic clothing in, in honor of my uh, very saintly great-grandfather, who was a Abedish uh, Vishiva, his name was. He was very well known in the Satmar vision at the Carpathian Mountains. He wrote songs for many of the Hasidic Rebbe's in that neighborhood. They still sing them to this day in, in Vizhnitz and Satmar many of the songs. So I, I just did it in his honor. I did not raise, we did not raise our children Hasidish. Um, we raised them with a love for Hasidus. Uh, but uh, we raised the children in the Yeshiva world. And, um, but you know, I, look, I, I really don't do labels much. I, I, people are people. And mm -hmm. I, I just yep. try to speak out about the values and, and the importance of, of um, you know, projecting these values in our daily life uh, to everyone. Uh, I, I was fortunate to have... It was just the outside. <laughs> I get emotional. We had an, an amazing uh, Rebbe, Ratam, Ratam, um, Ratam, of his memory. He was just a saint. He was, he was an angel. And he... And I faithfully tried to convey this message that we were privileged to see to my students and to my readers. So uh, I, was a hard, <laughs> I, I guess I was a horrible student in school <laughs> and uh, a poor student in school. You know, I, I'm very, I'm restless as an adult and uh, you, you can't do all the things that I do if you're not restless. You know, and that creative energy and, and um, boundless energy doesn't do well with sitting in a classroom. So I always identified with kids who weren't making it. I was actually halfway through college, pre-med. I wanted to be an oil surgeon. 
And um, I, when I was 17 years old, I taught a, um, I taught a learning group, a, a, a Talmud group in the summer camp that was at. And I volunteered. They asked me which group I want. I said, just give me all the kids that everybody else doesn't want. Give me five of them, and I'll have a great time with them. And I just loved it, and I decided that there'll be other oral surgeons, and this is what I should be doing with my life. Mm-hmm. And so what what topics do you cover? I'm saying, like, what, what areas? I know you have a new Gemara course that I want to hear about, um, so tell us about that in a moment. But what areas um, are you covering in general with your YES organization in terms of how parents right. are so, protecting so, children? So, yes, so, we basically, you know, I... I you know, I taught for 15 years. I was an X-ray teacher for the weakest track in the school. Then I started my own yeshiva. I, I started Project Yes, which which Center for Jewish Family Life that does work with uh, with kids with families and teens at risk. Um, but you know, I'm an educator at heart, and um, and I, I'm into prevention. You know, when you look at some problems, it, it just gets overwhelming when you think of all the things that need to be done. My heart is always drawn towards prevention. So the, the main programs that we're working on now is that we're working on a, uh, we have a, a fantastic mentoring program. We partner with Benoth, Benoth, I've got a Israel. We have almost a thousand girls every week, a big, big sister, little sister program um, that I've been funding for seven years and I'm extremely proud of. Um, and we're doing a lot of work in child abuse prevention and, and child safety training. And I've been publishing beginner curricular materials for Humash and now for Gemara. Gemara is the big one because uh, it's a very complicated uh, subject. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I would say uh, Talmud is the equivalent of a tort law class in French with no punctuation. That's what it is. That's really what it is. And, and I believe, I firmly believe, I believe this, and I saw it when I was an 8th grade Talmud teacher teaching the weaker students in the school, that the kids were coming to class. They, they, they really were never taught. There were just some fellow from the Gemara opened the Talmud with them in 5th or 6th grade and started reading this text to them. But like, who are these people and what's the language, what's the slang like, how does the deducting reasoning work? So we made a five-month course to introduce kids to it. Uh, if anybody is interested, they, they can go to bbchumash.com and uh, have a look. There's some sample pages there they can look at. But it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm biased. It's a beautiful program. It's out on ebook already. And um, it's designed to introduce, to acclimate children slowly to the very complicated text of Talmud. And, you know, our child safety program, which I'm, which we're very proud of, we, we've been uh, uh, producing uh, books, uh, child safety books. Wait, would you say that um, that kids that have the, the problems learning in school, that's, you know, a, a certain number of the at-risk teens that you're seeing are kids that um, had problems learning? Is that is that where the idea of working on these Chomish and Gamar courses came from to sort of look back at, at the pre- prevention and help them feel more a part of the learning so they don't develop that low self-esteem? Is that kind of where the idea comes from? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, what I discovered in my eighth grade class, I did it from 1982 to 1996. And even back then, like, these kids were in year three or four of Gamara. And by that time, they had already been tutored 
Many of them, the parents have stopped tutoring because the kids were getting more frustrated, wasting the time at night trying to catch up to something that they couldn't get in the first place. And they were so fed up, and, and I started analyzing it. And as I began realizing what was going on, I created a, a, a much smaller program to help my kids acclimate. And I, I basically started as if it was the first day they were learning Gemara. And so many of them would open their eyes and say, oh, hey, I get it, you know. So in today's world, you know, Alice, not everybody knows this, but um, schools typically, especially Haredi schools, are learning more and more Gemara per hour of the, you know, per, as a percentage of their total day in school. Um, in Tarvadat, when I went to Yeshiva, we, uh, we learned Gemara. Imagine, somebody would believe it, in 12th grade, Allison, in 12th grade, we learned Talmud two hours a day, period, exclamation point. That was it. Everything after that was voluntary. We were dismissed at 6 o'clock. So people, mm-hmm. the learners had, you know, the ones who were serious and enjoyed learning, you know, had extra uh, learning uh, period. But uh, that's what you had to do, so to speak. So if you weren't good in Gemara, if you didn't get deductive reasoning or mathematical logic or any of this, if you weren't good with languages. So it's the equivalent of not liking physics and chemistry. You know, go to a high school kid, and the average high school student has one or two periods that they really don't do well at. So that's what it was like in yeshiva. You know, if you weren't good at Gemara, you had other things. Here, the kids are learning, fine. I think it's an educational disaster. I've been screaming it for 20 years now. I think it's a disaster that we're spending so much time you know, learning Gemara as part of the mainstream curriculum and not in a voluntary fashion. Um, because the kids who can't mm-hmm. make it, this is the portal to religion. You can go mm-hmm. to, to, an, to an 18-year-old kid on a college campus and talk to them, who's not religious, you can talk to them about religion and God and have them learn Talmud. But if you're doing this all day long and half the class, is, three-quarters of the class are nodding their heads with the Talmud learning and loving every minute of it, and every minute of it, and you don't get it, you are so disenfranchised from religion, not just from Talmud learning. So I think it's becoming more and more important that we give kids the basic skills to acquire uh, this very complicated body of learning in a uh, methodical, carefully thought out, designed after a secular program with different types of, of uh, modalities of learning in the, in the answer sheets and graphics and charts and all kinds of stuff. We're, we're delighted. Alice and I really we released it in May, the first uh, Talmud book. I really did not expect more than three or four schools to take it to this school year because schools don't do um, impulse purchases. That's how do you like Let's go with that, you know? To, to get something into a school, you got to... Uh, you got to get feedback. You got to get your education committee on it. You know, it's a, it's a, the teachers have to get on board. We're in 23 schools. Um, so I'm delighted. You know, Christian Academy, which is in your neighborhood, uh, bought 110 copies. Uh, We've been giving them all free licenses on the digital. We have uh, that the children can do homework online, uh, on uh, on the, you know on uh, uh, online, email the sheets to the dads in the office. Or, you know, uh, they could do a teacher to the tutor to study partners. Just the beginning, I have plans to produce apps and gamify it and really 
make an environment, a digital platform where kids from around the world, if you're studying a certain page, you'll be able to post up, I'm studying the page, you know, Bachoff Bay, page 22 in, in Brachos or whatever, and let's see if anybody want to study with me. So the sky's the limit here. I believe that this is, I think this is the way we got to go. <coughs> well, this is amazing. I'm I'm sorry to say that we're out of time because there's so many more things that I wanted to ask you about, but maybe we'll have to bring you on again. Um, really, just the the thought process of seeing all the kids at risk that you dealt with over the years, and then looking backwards to see how did these problems begin, how did the low self esteem begin, how did the danger begin, and then working backwards and trying to well certainly advocate for the kids that are in trouble, but then also to keep kids safe because. Hopefully, most of us start off safe, but then to help, you know, their parents and teachers keep them safe and uh, in a good place. So we really owe you uh, so much as a community, and we wish you only Hatzlacha uh, in all of your endeavors. And thank you for listening uh, to all of our uh, dedicated listeners, and you can catch us same time, same place next week. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me out, and then thanks. I uh, hope you listen to it uh, meaningful.